Our next guest is the current principal of Lucy Craft Laney Community School, Lisa Pavlek. Lucy Laney is a Minneapolis public school serving pre-K through fifth grade students in North Minneapolis. Most recently, Lucy Laney School made the news after a fourth grade class had an idea to do a peace march after three children under the age of 10 were shot near the school in the month of May, 2021, and every class at the school joined. In this episode, Lisa and Shonda talk about their love of the North Side, the lessons Lisa learned during the pandemic, and how Lisa is helping Lucy Laney be a safe, welcoming space where every student need is acknowledged. Enjoy the show. I grew up in Illinois and I came to Minnesota kind of very unintentionally and somewhat reluctantly. Um, my dad was a school social worker and my mom was a school nurse and I did not want to go to college. I was like, I'm good. I can go to some sort of community school. My only goal in life is to save money and buy a car. And um, my dad was like, that's not going to work. And so <laughs> he ended up assisting me in following one of my friends up, up to Minnesota for, for college. And I stayed and I've always wanted to live and work and go to church in the same community. So I went to Bethel college, very white community, um, not historically, um, super relevant or woke, but I, I ended up working in the schools in an internship and I was at Holland community school and it was in Northeast Minneapolis. And I was like, all right, I need to move to Northeast. And then I got moved to, to Jordan Park. And I was like, okay, where's Jordan Park? I've never heard of that city. I didn't even know it was a name of a school. I thought it was an, like its own city. And so um, I, I got a job there and I immediately fell in love with the, with the Northside community, with Northside education community. And um, my husband and I got married when we were young. I was a baby. I was 22. And I said, okay, Steve, I'm working in this school. We need to move here. And he was like, you know, I'm from the country, right? But Okay. And so, so we moved north and we, and we stayed ever since. And I bounced around from school to school. I worked as an educational support professional or a paraprofessional for a number of years before I moved into the role of school social worker. And um, in 2007, when Lainey was fresh started, I ended up as a half-time social worker. Baby social worker did not know what I was doing. And my, I have two daughters. They're 14 and 15 now. So my younger daughter, who just turned 14, was like three weeks old when I got hired at, at Lainey. And both of them attended Lainey from high five through fifth grade. So I've been a Laney parent and then they went to Franklin Middle School. And now my older daughter just finished her ninth grade year at North Community High School. And my younger daughter's oh, going to start there in the fall. Yep. You're a North parent too, aren't you? I am. I yep. am. Yep. So a lot of times, you know, people talk about like this is pathway from teacher's age to teachers. Mm -hmm. But very rarely do you see or do I hear about people that actually take that route. Mm -hmm. it's like they like stay in that role or they stay in a dean role and they don't mm -hmm. often become licensed teachers but you not only did that but then you became an administrator of a school is that an unusual sort of path or are you seeing that more often we're seeing it more often now I think so I didn't become a licensed teacher I became a licensed social worker oh 
And I wanted to become a licensed teacher, but I had um, gotten a bachelor's degree in social work and it was less school to get my license as a social worker than it was as a teacher. And so I went, I went that route. So I worked as a social worker for a number of years and I didn't have any aspirations to be, to be an administrator, but um, I just kept looking like, who, me? You want, <laughs> you want me? Um, and so I became an assistant principal and then principal, but we are seeing pathways open up more some, but it's, it's still a barrier because when you think about the traditional way to become a licensed teacher, you're going to school and then you're paying to come to work, basically, to do student teaching. And that only works for the traditional going to college right out of high school and somebody is able to pay for your college. And so for so many people who are incredible educators, they, they get in this predicament of not being able to stop working and stop making money to go back to school to get there teacher's license. And so it's an area that we need to do better in the, in the profession. But we, we are starting to make some progress. Minneapolis Public Schools has a residency program. We call it the Grow Your Own, where current um, paraprofessionals, so associate educators, special education assistants, we call them um, educational support professionals in Minneapolis Public Schools are able to take a year and they get their master's degree along with a teaching license and the district pays a stipend similar to the amount that they were making in the educational support professional roles. And so that's that's helped, but it's a very expensive program. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I went through a teachers of color program like a gazillion years ago. Was it the Q? I didn't go through Q, but um, I don't know if you remember the Teachers of Color program that was at St. Cloud State under mm -hmm. Les Green. Um, there were a number of folks that are, you know, Charles uh, Nixon Johnson. We were just talking mm -hmm. about him um, before we started, but he was in that program. Um, uh, Taja Buckner, who's a French teacher. She was at Henry for a while. She was in that program. But the same thing was like once I went through it, I mean, I was clear that I probably was not gifted <laughs> um, after I, I aspirationally, I thought I would be a great teacher, but I'm really I, I don't think so. I see your face, but I'm not sure I have the patience. <laughs> um, but anyway, but but it was prohibitive in terms of the student teaching aspect of it. And that's actually where I sort of couldn't figure out where to go. And there were just constant changes in terms of the licensing requirements that just felt really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to hear that there's some pathways that are coming together in ways that are removing those barriers. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we're trying, but we definitely have a, have a long way to go. Minnesota has a tiered licensing system now that is, is something new for us as a state. And to be fully transparent, I don't understand all of it. I need to do some more some more work around making sure I understand, but it still requires a bachelor's degree, even to have an alternative pathway through the licensure. Mm -hmm. But we're definitely moving in the right direction because um, it's, a, it's a fallacy that you need a piece of paper certification to be impactful. Say more about that. Well, we, we go through this traditional schooling and I'm in the schools, but I've never been a great student. Um, in, in the traditional school. I mean, I could get the grades. I was one of those kids that I think would irritate other people sometimes because I could do it. And then I chose not to Yeah. Um, a lot, but we, we have this system and structure set up that values the written word 
above all else and values getting a piece of paper and, and getting a certificate and then thinking that if you can jump through the hoops and if you can navigate the rules of this system, then somehow you are, are more worthy. And it's important to have checks and balances and accountability and a system and a structure. But um, anytime we, we worship the structure and the system over the people, we're, the process, we're setting ourselves yeah. up for some failure. Yeah, it's really, you know, we had a convening this week um, that, that the Minneapolis Foundation um, sponsored. And there was a conversation there of, you know, we're often um, in schools and looking at academic success by evaluating teachers. But the reality is, is that there's a whole lot of non-licensed people in schools that are working with students that are impacting their learning mm -hmm. um, and their psychological, their psychological safety and mm -hmm. other elements of who they are and how they're developing as students mm -hmm. um, and as people. And we're not always aligning those measurements um, to that end or recognizing um, the roles that they play um, in there. And I know at Lucy Laney, you guys have been... Um, notable in terms of all the adults in the building being directed towards um, making students successful. Were you at the school when sort of that culture started to get oriented that way? And what, what do you, what would you contribute mm -hmm. um, to, to that being the case? So I've been at Laney a long time. Um, I just finished my 14th year. And so it means I'm getting old. I like to tell people that I started when I was 14, but they don't, they don't believe me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, yes. When in the early years that I was at Lucy Laney, I came in 2007, the school had recently been fresh started. And um, it's very difficult when you take children from a number of different schools and throw them all together. And then teachers from a number of different, different places and, and throw them all together because we, we learn when we're vulnerable and we're not vulnerable without feeling safe and loved and protected and to feel safe and loved and protected, you need to be in relationship. And so it's, it, it was, it was a difficult space to be in. And at one point we had um, what we call a behavior Dean in every single grade level pod. And so we were pouring resources into managing student behavior, which was needed and necessary at the time. But over the years, we've been able to take those same resources and direct them into the classroom. And so our classroom teachers, we have co-teachers and our content leads and our special educators all, all work together. And, and you're right, we, we see every adult in the building as an educator. And if you come into Lucy Laney, it would take you a while, I think, to figure out who's who, because every adult teaches every child, regardless of role. Does that kind of answer? It does. I mean, I ran I ran for school board in uh, citywide in, in 2010. Uh, you know, every, everybody knows I didn't get that seat. But I um, but I did make some stops along my way when I was campaigning. And Laney was one of them. And I remember doing I think I was like a teacher for a day or something like that. I was in the classroom. Man, I was there for like two hours. I'm like, uncle, it's over with. I need to go home. I just remember the kids were just all over the place. And then I remember one young man got up and he was like on, on the table. I'm like, why are you standing on the table? Like, get off the table. Like, and I'm looking around, like, who's going to tell this kid to get off the table? And I just remember thinking, man, okay, there's a lot going on now. If I walked into that building today, these are the exact same kids. They are. They are. These one are the exact same kids with the exact same parents. Mm -hmm. Same, same children, same parents. 
um, many different staff. We've, we've come to a place where we have very high staff retention, very high. And so, like I say, I've been here for 14 years. I'm not the only one. And every year we have more and more staff that have been here for a decade, but it's, it's not the children, you know, we, we often in our society have this view, a deficit, a deficit based view saying something's wrong with our children or something's wrong with their families. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong at all. You just need to, it's our responsibility as educators. We are the ones being paid by taxpayer dollars to make sure we have the right people in the building with the right thoughts and mindset. And then it's our responsibility to create that familial atmosphere, to create the conditions where the best in the children is what shines out. Mm -hmm. I know you've experienced this of people coming in and talking about this community in a way that is not congruent with how we know it. Mm-hmm. Have you developed the tools to help people be exposed to what we know about the North Side? Mm-hmm. I I try. I try. I find that there's a, a, a couple of different types of people that I encounter, especially types of white people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a white woman, not from Minneapolis, not from the North side, not even from Minnesota. I'm married to a white husband who grew up um, in the country on dirt roads and we have, and we have white children. So one, one type of person that I encounter is um, the type of person I'm like, wow, you live on the North side and you work at Lucy Laney. Oh, bless you. You're doing such wonderful things. And my response to that is you, you have it all wrong. I'm the one who's learning and I'm the one who's incredibly blessed to be embraced by a community who largely doesn't look like me, but I've been embraced and my children have gotten a better education in my opinion than they would get anywhere else, anywhere else. And so, so talking through that is, is something that, that I've learned over the years, because if, if not me, then who? You can't just write people off when, when they say things that aren't true. And, and it's become less and less over time. I'm also very cognizant and aware. I don't want to contribute by who I am to any type of gentrification or, or othering of the beautiful community that, that is the North side. Yeah, I appreciate that. So you said that there's two ways that people come. So one that way. What's the mm-hmm. other way? Um. The other, the other way, and this is, this is um, outside people who aren't, aren't part yep. of the community would be like, why do you do that? Mm-hmm. Like, that is stupid. I would never subject my children to a place where they hear gunshots, or I would never work in a school where you need to worry about code reds and code yellows on a regular basis. So I think it's either like a paternalizing or a condescension mm-hmm. from, from people from the outside. And one thing I've, I've learned over the years about Minnesotans from outer outside the Metro or outside the city is so many people have been raised in a way that makes our community look scary. Yeah. I didn't have that because I grew up in Illinois. And so I came here and I thought Jordan park was a city. um, (laughs) And so um, I feel I feel incredibly blessed for that, and I feel and I feel humbled. But I also feel like it's my responsibility to not 
glamorize something, but to show there are so many different sides of every community and so many different sides of, of every issue. None of us, myself included, yourself included, um, should allow ourselves to, to look at only a single story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've said even on this podcast before, and I, you know, I love the the work that is being done around narrative because I think as a kid growing up here, you have so many people that are coming in and defining for themselves the assumptions of who people are and what this community is. And you live through those narratives as, as children. And um, I've even in my adult life, when people will interact with me and say, well, talk to me about how you made it out of the North side. And I'm like, uh, you know, so I still live here and I can almost see their face like they don't know what to say. And I'm like, you know, I was raised that a community is not a place that you move from, but that you invest in. And that's a decision that I that I have personally made. But I think that as a kid, you you're you you get shaped by the adult conversations that are around. And and in education, there's so much talk about how the kids here are struggling to learn and be successful and how um, their behavior problems, how their parents, you know, the neighborhood. And, um, you know, there, there is a responsibility to undo the damage that a lot of adults are doing to our young people and their psyche and their, their self-esteem and self-identity. And some of that is around geography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're yeah. still experiencing, communities are experiencing the aftermath of, of practices like redlining. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, you know, so we talked about um, the the people like, how can you live here? It's sort of dangerous. Um, Let's just go along that line because, you know, I've wanted to talk to you for a while and and wanted to hear more of the the Laney story. But I also was really impressed when recently with the surge of violence, there were three young people that have been shot to have um, passed away. And you engage the students at Laney to bring their voices forward in terms of how they were feeling. And I remember thinking this is exactly what we need to be doing is, is not pretending that the issues don't exist, not pretending that kids are unaware. Let's not skip past their fears, um, their concerns, their anxiety related to these issues, but how can we help move it in a direction that um, is helpful and acknowledging and so what, what, how did you, can you tell us about how you, what happened for the people that maybe didn't see the, the news coverage on that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it, it came out of our fourth grade um, team and one classroom in particular, Mr. Alcinder Holly is one of our incredible educators and he is a fourth grade classroom teacher and he and his colleagues, Ms. Walton and Ms. Plowman had been having conversations with the children kind of throughout you know, about everything, about um, the murder of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin and about the uh, insurrection on in January and, and then about what's happening in our community and about protest and what does that mean and why are we seeing these things? You know, it was um, before some of, some of these shootings happened, it, it, it was very difficult for our children to see tanks and people with machine guns in their neighborhood. Like that's traumatizing in and of itself, even though uh, you, you would say, oh, well, they're here to protect us. That's not, that's not the message that, that families and children receive. 
it's not the message I feel and receive. And I know in my head that that was kind of the, the reason. And so they'd been having these ongoing conversations and it, it kind of happened organically through, through Mr. Holly's class. The kids are like, we want to do something. And Mr. Holly and I were talking about it. I said, let's do it. And then we said, you know, we're a Laney, we're a Laney family. Let's bring it to the whole school. Let's see what do the children want to do? What do they want to say? And so they decided that they wanted to write some cheers and chants, and they wanted to make signs and bring them out to the front so that people could see that they have a voice and that their voice could be heard. And so they did that. And it was um, very much student led. And we got our little megaphone out, put new, put new batteries in it and um, talked talk to our parents about it, sent some notices home, did a robocall um, so that parents could be informed because not every parent wants their child to have these conversations at school. And we want to be cognizant of that. But also at the same time, to your point, not um, back away from reality because hiding things doesn't, doesn't do any of us any good, but we wanted to address it and give them words um, in developmentally appropriate ways because we have children from age four to age 11. So each classroom teacher had conversations with their class and decided with the children, well, what do they wanna do? Do they wanna make signs? Do they wanna do this? Do they wanna do that? And then we just marched out the south doors of our school led by the fourth graders. And they said um, phrases like, um, no more shots, just love and thoughts, or kids' lives matter. Yes, they do, things like that. We marched from the side of the building around to the front. And we weren't weren't planning on this, but we ended up stopping kind of right in front of Penn. There's a, gra a raised grassy area in the front. And I would say for almost five minutes, traffic just stopped. There were cars stopped in the road, cheering, honking for the kids. And um, it was powerful to me. And I'm not a protester. Like yeah. I don't go to demonstrations. I, I, I'm an action oriented, so I'll do things, but, but not that, but it was, it was very powerful and, and healing, I think for the children. And then we had two fourth graders, Imani and Aaron, who had pre-written speeches and practiced. And so we moved to be a little closer to the front of the building. Mr. Holly said a couple words. I greeted everybody. And then Aaron and Imani uh, used their voices. And, and shared their words about their how it feels to them to be 10 years old and not be able to play in their yards because children are being shot in their neighborhood. And then we hung up the signs, went inside and got some water because it was about 90 degrees. <laughs> it was hot, yeah. We talked about sort of your time at Laney and just watching how things have changed mm -hmm. and you know centering youth voice and including them in what's happening in a building is really powerful, right? Like I can feel myself like tearing up a little bit. Just Me too. Out. I know, I'm just like, oh man, I need to wipe a tear. Sorry, I'm like dropping stuff. Because I'm like, you know, to, to think about being a young person who, you know, part of feeling valued is, is, is about people hearing you. Like, you know, you're not part of a herd. You're not part of a, you know, I mean, there's something that's just so powerful about that. and. Um, and I think sometimes my read on it is that there are places that think it's too disruptive. We can't meet the needs, right? That's how I, I read it, that we can't meet all the individual demands, right? Like that are happening in classrooms. And, you know, again, you are dealing with these children who are emotionally being impacted by what's happening. They have families that are complicated. 
They have families that have a lot to offer, but they're coming to the school with some of the same challenges. And so do you feel like your school is equipped to meet? Are you feeling the same demands of all the other schools and like ill-equipped to meet the needs of kids or in families or? I see it a little bit differently. Shonda rhymes with Honda. I believe that as, as institutions, school institutions, we are one of many pillars of the community. So school is one place and space. Church is another place and space. Family is another place and space. Neighbors, community centers are another place and space. And I I don't believe that it is my or our responsibility to meet every need. I believe it is my and our responsibility to create a safe, warm, welcoming place where every need is acknowledged. And then to help to help connect and to and to walk alongside and truly be a family and be part of the village that raises. But I think that for for a school to take on every need in some ways is prideful. And it's and it's also I don't know if paternalistic is the right word, but who am I? to meet every need. We already have, and you already have everything you need. It's my job to create that place and that space mm-hmm. so that all of us can come together and be the village. Just even saying that we we have a responsibility to acknowledge the needs. How do you acknowledge the needs? Like, what does that look like? Something little, I think something you'll hear often is, you know, the child who comes in and um, there hasn't been time to wash clothes at home. We have a washer and dryer. We have some some changes so we can meet that need in the moment. But then we can also um, check in with the family like, all right, is this a need in the moment? Is there is there someone or some service we can connect you with so that that can be taken off of your plate? You know, so we can meet some of those needs, but acknowledging those emotional and, and traumatic events, just, just like what we were talking about with the children coming out and doing a peace rally. Did we take care of that need? Hmm. Is the violence gone on the North side? Are the children no longer experiencing trauma? No, but we acknowledged it. And we created that, that space for it to come out mm-hmm. in a way. Yep. I get it. What about the parents? Cause you know, parents, like we can be, we can be fierce. <laughs> you can't. And that's what I love about parents. Because that's, I mean, these are your babies. Think about what other profession, other than maybe maybe the medical profession, do we have the honor of taking care of families' most precious gifts? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, my children, my children, um, Sundara and Naya were, were Laney babies, but I'm not the only one. And counted up this year, we had 17 students whose whose parents are Lucy Laney employees and we have some we have some staff who were staff first and became parents like myself and then we have some staff who were parents first and became staff and so we we say that we are a family the beauty of having so many of us who are parents and and staff either present or or former it forces us to do so because you can't have a conversation about laney parents or laney kids with the staff without having a laney parent in the room and so yes parents are fierce but so am i so are we 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 have the same goal and that's for your child to thrive 
and yeah. for your child to have the best possible school day experience that they can have. And so I see, I see parents as partners, not adversaries, even yeah. when we don't agree because our ultimate goal is the same for the children. Yeah, so is, is there a high level of parent engagement at the school? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Have you had to adjust what that looks like there? Mm -hmm. We've had to rethink as a staff, and we spent a couple of years thinking very deeply because, you know, traditionally in the school system, parent engagement looks like you coming in during the school day to help with something, or you as the parent coming in in the evening, or you as the parent reaching out to me. And that's not always the case. You know, I think about my own self as a parent. Once my children were not, if my children at elementary weren't at Laney, I would have been at Laney during all the times that that parents were supposed to come to the school. And when they, they got to Franklin, I was not able to be there. And so we've, we're very creative. We do home visits to go meet families every August. We divide up into groups and then we take a day, we get our new t-shirts for the, for the fall and we go visit every family on the same day and, and just welcome them to the new school year for conferences. We've challenged ourselves to, to not think of it just as this one day or this one evening, but we take the whole month and meet with families in any way that we possibly can. And we have about 80% participation, which wow. is huge. It 80%. Is. I would participate if someone did that. <laughs> right? Like I can meet with you be any morning at 7.30, any afternoon at 3.15. I can come to your job. You can come to me. You know, it's, it's just not reasonable. I think it's so funny because, you know, I'm in these conversations, you know, in philanthropy, I'm in them a lot about parent, parent engagement, all of this stuff. And I, you know, always in my head, I'm thinking about like all the missed phone calls or the missed day meetings and all, you know, all this stuff, right? Like I'm five kids in, right? I've, I've mm -hmm. either, I, you know, some kids I've gotten it better than others, mm -hmm. but my job is really demanding, right? And I'm like, I'm in some North side statistic of the parent that didn't show up but I'm highly engaged. So like exactly. if you text me, I'm, I'm there for a text message. If you call me, good luck, mm -hmm. right? If you set up a, a FaceTime meeting with me, I'm there. If you want me to come in for 15 minutes, it's a gamble, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure out how do I get away from sort of that, that mom guilt of, of, you know, not showing up, but trying to be the best in the midst of a really demanding job. And I have often said to people like the role of parents and, and mothers in particular look very different than when this parent structure got designed. Mm -hmm. um, and we have new technology. So how, how, how should we be using it to think about how to build community with parents in it mm -hmm. versus leveraging parents to manage behavior and grades? Right. But how do you build, build a community in which parents are part of that community is is a very different orientation from my, from my perspective. Well, and you know, the quickest way to get a parent to not answer your call or show up next time is when they get a call and it sounds like you're tattling. My favorite one is they keep looking at their phone and I'm just like, I mean, you know, is there some things I'm just wondering if it's possible that you, can you handle that inside of the school? Cause you know, it's, it, it doesn't seem like it should be elevated. Maybe you can help me over here with this bedroom situation. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> maybe we can barter. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I, I do I do believe, though, 
and you can tell me if this is true or not with you as the as the mother of five yeah we have the most parents coming into the building when the children are excited to show them something so if the children get to show their project then they are like that squeaky wheel mom you have to come you have to come because i did this and you get to see that and that's and you know parents will be like i had to take off work because she would not leave me alone i just had to come see this project or i had to come and so when the children are deeply invested and they are excited they bring their parents if i look back on my experience i have one child left in school the places that i was most engaged in were the places again that i felt most part of community mm-hmm. right when i went in and i felt like someone knew my name mm-hmm. they knew which children belonged to me they would tell me little stories that did not involve like you know assignments and behavior mm-hmm. right i didn't have behavior kids but I had one, but you know, uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it was just like, oh my God, I saw the sweetest little thing. Jalen was helping so-and-so with such and such. And I was just like, you know, I just had to stop and watch him. Like, I love being in environments where I know someone is observing and, and paying attention to who they are as people mm-hmm. and, and the environment just matters a lot. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you, you know, the participation on the North side, if your kid is in a sport, if they are part of an activity, if they are in a leadership role, like the whole community will show up for those that, kids. That's true. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's somehow a disconnection from how people view it outside, or perhaps it's a mis- mismatch in terms of what we're measuring and what we're choosing to share. Mm-hmm. Because I've lived here a long time and, you know, I don't remember my mom or, or I, I should say, I don't remember my dad kind of going, but man, if I was in something, mm-hmm. you know, or showing up to games and all that kind of stuff, oh man, whole community shows up. Yep. Yep. So the pandemic, so, you know, on top of it all, so you're how many years in now as a principal three, two, how was yeah. that transition by the way? Um, well, I I, uh, did it kicking and screaming a little bit. So, you know, Mari Freeslaven, Mrs. Freeslaven had been at Laney for for 10 years at that point. She served as the middle school assistant principal for three and then became became the principal. And I was a school social worker under her as the assistant or as the when she was the assistant principal. And uh, I didn't want to be the assistant principal in the first place. So then when when she told me, she's like, Lisa, um, you know, I've been praying. Um, I'm going to apply for North High. I said, you're what? You're going to do what? You're going to go where? Well, who's going to lead Lady? She said, you are. I said, no, I'm not. But um, I did. And I am. And the transition was actually really good. I mean, it's my first time being being principal, but I couldn't imagine um, a better a better transition. The way that that Mari taught me was very much like a style of of co-leadership. And she would tell me over the years, she's like, you're my succession plan. When I leave Laney, you're gonna be the principal. I said, you're never gonna leave Laney. We're just gonna do this till we retire. And um, she would just just laugh and roll her eyes at me. But um, the staff was incredible. They're so supportive of me. The community was incredible and so supportive of me. Um, And, you know, I, I can struggle with my confidence and, and not, not fully believing in myself, but just the way that I was so fully embraced and lifted up and supported, um, it, it was, it was, it was incredible. 
you know, mm-hmm. and I was nervous. Like, who can follow Mari Freeslaven? You know, she's I think a-, a lot of people felt that way, but I think there was a lot yeah. of comfort in you coming in, and it has felt very seamless from the outside. And mm-hmm. you know, I love, I love the story of, I love the intentionality of leaders who recognize other leaders are intentional around preparation. Mm-hmm. Makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure you have her on speed dial or you have each other on speed dial. Oh yeah. And I can see her school from my house right now yeah. and my children go to her school. So she can't, she can't get away from me when I need help. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So, so your two years in one year was spent virtually more or less. Well, February mm-hmm. was kind of when I first heard the name or the word coronavirus. And then we were in school in March and I want to say it was a Sunday, like Sunday, March 14th. Mm -hmm. 2020 when governor walls made an announcement that the schools were all going to shut down and we had one more day with the children so it was pretty much almost an entire year because our last day of school with the kids was march 15th and then the first day that we brought back our kindergarten through second graders was february 8th 2021 what did the pandemic teach you in the school my, so my boss just asked me that in, um, in my evaluation. I was like, I don't know how to answer this, but I think, so for me as a person, I'm, I really struggle with transitions. Okay. I really struggle with transitions, even every year, the end of the school year, I'm boohooing. And then the beginning of the, you know, just transitions are hard for me. And it, the pandemic taught me as a person and me as a leader that I'm way more adaptable than I thought I was. And I have the ability to remain kind of calm and steady on the outside, even if I'm like a duck with the feet, just paddle, paddle, paddle underwater. So that's what, that's what I learned about me. I learned about my staff and I already knew this, but they are second to none. You should come see these educators in action sometime. I will. They They are second to none. And they did the same thing with the pandemic. You know, we lamented. We cried a little bit, we hid, and then we rolled up our sleeves and the the things that they've been able to do has been absolutely incredible. I mean, my kindergarten team visited every single family every single week. Wow. Throughout the duration, every single kindergartner got a home visit every single week and a package of materials. And when the weather would allow a little quick mini lesson outside with sidewalk chalk. Mm. And then what I've learned about our our kids and our families is um, I just have so much respect. So much respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was. Yeah. I mean, I even think about Jalen, you know, at North and um, the teachers, the days where I would like the doorbell would be ringing. And of course, Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of a Zoom and I'm like, who Mm -hmm. the heck is at the door? And I'm like, oh, you know, like, why are they interrupting my piece and my work, Mm -hmm. you know? And then I go open up the door and it's a team of teachers from North. Like we just came to check on Jalen and I'm like, oh, you know, let me go get him. And it just shifted my whole energy because you are caring about him. There's no other reason that you're coming, but to bring him this balloon and just to see mm-hmm. if he was okay. Mm-hmm. There's um, nothing in the contract that said you had to do that. And so it's the humanity of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any sort of um, new ways of of doing school that you will that you hope are maintained? I hated distance learning. I hated it. 
I hated okay. it as a parent. I hated it as an educator. Okay. Um, but we 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 do have tools now. We have tools that that we can continue. Kind of to your point earlier about um, parent involvement and parent engagement. You know, if if we have Google Meet or mm -hmm. FaceTime or any of these, and FaceTime we always had, but we didn't use it in the same way we use it now. Yeah, um, I use it like like a phone call now with my friends. I don't even yeah. call. I'm just FaceTiming. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you could do a group FaceTime, yep. so it feels really similar to a Zoom. But I there there's a great um, opportunity there for us to continue that and to stay to stay connected in those in those ways and then some of the online tools and platforms we've gotten better with like seesaw and google classroom they are wonderful ways to differentiate for the children to think kind of kind of outside the box the other thing and i haven't fully wrapped my mind around it yet is i just i, I want to think differently about scheduling why do we do things the same way every day? Some of it is just because you have to, right? If a teacher needs 55 minutes of prep time per day and you have a music teacher, an art teacher, and a PE teacher, well, then the kids rotate through. But what if they could have PE for two hours or three hours on a Wednesday and we could get on bikes and go down to the trailhead and do all these different things? And so I don't have the answer yet because when you have 500 children, like, yeah. You've got to schedule some things, but that's one of the things that we kind of have bouncing around in our heads is trying to think outside the box in that way a little bit as a Minneapolis public school community school. Yeah, with the um, which gives you more freedom. Is that why you said it that way? No, I think in some ways it gives less. OK, you know, because we're not a Montessori. We can't just scrap the curriculum and do things the way we want to do. Um, we're even transportation, you know, we're part of this very large system and there's tiers of when schools start for a reason. It's because we don't have enough buses to bring everybody into the building at 8.30. So some schools have to start at 7.30, some schools start at eight, some start at nine. So that's kind of what I mean. There's certain yeah. parameters that are the way they are. Mm -hmm. You guys are 7.30 start, right? No. So this school year, we're an 840 start and we're moving to be an 805 start next year. Oh, that's a different so earlier. It is. We were we were um, slated to be a 730 start. But we're not going to be, um, thankfully. Oh, man, I've had some mad kids in this house about them early starts. I know. It's nice <laughs> in the afternoon. It's nice in the afternoon. But for me, I feel like one of the biggest levers to having um, high quality instruction is the time that teachers have to engage in professional development together and plan together. And we have a really robust after school program. And um, so we do all of our meetings before school with a 730 start. There is no way we could do that. Oh, like, yeah. What, what principal could tell your staff? All right, we're going to be starting meetings at 615 in the morning. <laughs> and so um, it's going to be an early day. The staff day next year will be seven to three but we'll still be able to get our meetings in before the kids start coming in for breakfast and stuff at 7.50. And then the end time will be 2.35 and then we'll have after school right after that. Mm -hmm. With, um, do you guys have a high suspension, a high number of kids getting suspended? No, mm -mm. Um, years ago we did, but it's something that we thought very intentionally about and did a lot of work around. Minneapolis Public Schools developed a new um, behavior, student behavior policy in December of 2013, I believe. Yeah, that's something. And 
Yeah. And, and we, we started as soon as a draft was out, we started having conversations and thinking and talking, but we say we're a family, the Lucy Laney family in a family. If someone in your household like misbehaves, you don't kick them out. You don't, you find a way to work through it. And research and studies show us that suspension is not an effective intervention for the person being suspended. And for suspension to be effective, the child has to want to be part of the community. Like if you're yeah. not deeply invested in your school community, who cares if, if you're suspended? Because you don't want to be there anyway. And so, so we do, we're very proactive in, in trying to make sure that every child um, knows and believes that they are a 100% needed part of our school family. And we do reserve the right to suspend. And we do suspend sometimes because sometimes, I mean, you need to weigh the, the individual versus the group. And sometimes you, you need a break. Yeah. We need some time. Our suspensions have, have dropped every year. And we, we intentionally did away with any type of referral or um, removal for disruptive disorderly kind of conduct because that that's that's a little bit of a catch-all phrase and it is the area where black and brown children particularly black boys would be um grossly yeah, over insubordination insubordination yep disruptive disorderly insubordination and so um, we do have children who are disruptive and who don't yeah. who don't follow directions. But that is not why we would ever remove you from Are, school. Isn't that what kids do, though? Isn't that just like a matter of fact? <laughs> like part of it's part of life. It's you part know? of their development. Like, yeah, children by nature, like you push back. Mm hmm. Man, I don't know what made me think of that other than thinking about the pandemic and how mm -hmm. tools are being used. And I was thinking about like us having hybrid meetings and, mm -hmm. and um, office context and thinking about kids that might be removed from classrooms mm -hmm. or not in school for various reasons and yeah. whether or not they could, um, if they were out of class for a suspension or mm -hmm. at home for something, if mm -hmm. they would be able to like log in and see classroom and still participate mm -hmm. if they needed a break or something like that. I think that's where my head was going with that yep. question. I think that would be a lot harder at the elementary level because of just the, the group work and, and movement throughout the classroom and stuff. But I, I could see us trying it. And I could also see um, high schools in particular, but both middle and high schools able to, to do that. I mean, I even think about children who might need to go out of town for yeah. something, but they have that access to the internet or they can bring a Chromebook and a hotspot with them. Um, or if somebody's sick, mm -hmm. but you're not that sick. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have um, login challenges? I know there was a lot of stuff, especially in philanthropy around kids not having access to Wi-Fi, not having the tools, not logging in. Um, was that, did you face that challenge as well? We did. We did. It was extremely challenging. It was extremely challenging. It took us a while, quite a while as a district to um, get devices ready yeah. to go because um, our, our district, and rightfully so, you know, in hindsight, didn't want us to send devices home with kids kind of on that last day in March because they needed to be updated. They needed to have software and things put on them. So it took a while to get the devices out. And then everybody in the country was experiencing the same thing. So getting hotspots 
to provide internet access for those who didn't have it took a long time because they were on back order. Yeah. Are you worried about sort of um, student, academic, you know, sort of the backslide? Are you worried that you're going to have to come back and make up time from last year? Yes and no. Okay. I think we will need to come back and make up time. I also think that our children are incredible and our educators are incredible and they'll find a way to do it. Okay. Before we wrap, I'm wondering in terms of where you're visioning, where you're going to go next, Mm -hmm. are there things that you want people to either know about what's happening at Lucy Laney, a question maybe I haven't asked you, or like a particular need of the school, Mm -hmm. Um, anything along those lines that you would want to share or any question I haven't asked? Minneapolis Public Schools is undergoing a comprehensive district design right now. I'm sure as a parent, you've heard about it. So CDD for short. And one of the impacts of the CDD on on Lucy Laney and every every Northside school and and all of them is with kind of the, the redrawing of attendance boundaries and a shift. So in Minneapolis public schools, historically, use myself as an an example, my house on 16th and Logan, when my girls were in elementary, if I typed their name into the school finder, they would have four or five community schools, Laney, Nellie Stone, Johnson, Hall, Bethune, that they could get transportation to, or we could apply for a citywide magnet. With the CDD, we're, we're moving to a true, a truer community school model. So each child will have the option of their one community school, or to apply for a citywide magnet. And so what's happening at Laney and many other schools is we're saying goodbye this summer to about half of our children and we're welcoming in a new half. And so developing new new relationships with families who might not want to leave their school. You know, we have many Laney families who they don't they don't want to leave, they want to stay. And then there's families that go to that Whose, whose children go to other schools and they're like, Ms. Pavlak, thank you for calling me, but I don't want my child to go to Laney. I want him to stay, to stay over here. And I, and I feel that deeply as a parent. I also know, know the vision and the direction that, that we are moving as a district and kind of the ultimate goal. But this fall is going to be a, a, an opportunity for us to create a new, a new school community. And it's not just Laney. And I think that's important for the community to know especially for the elementary kiddos, the older elementary kiddos, it's, it's hard. Change is hard. Was there any consideration of the amount of change and trauma that kids have experienced over the last year to delay the changing of the school boundaries uh, to another year or to allow those that want to opt in to opt in and then to tear it into um, where the vision is? I'm sure there was. I'm not part or privy to to many of those district kind of district senior leadership level conversations and decisions. I do know that in Minneapolis public schools, we are not adequately serving our children of color. We're not. And so our our district believes that doing this is a way to bring more equity. One of the things that I can tell you, and when I ran for school board, it was a big issue for people on whether or not my kids went to Minneapolis public schools. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a couple of things that I want to offer um, into this conversation related to the changes is that 
understanding the system, I sort of get the direction. From a parent perspective, it was it's very challenging. I actually did have kids in the district. They made me promise that I wouldn't share whether they went to school when I was running because <laughs> um, they wanted their they wanted to be uh, not involved in my um, political aspirations. <laughs> oh, the, um, your children had you not share. Okay. Yeah, they were like, don't tell them that we're at, you know, they were at Hall um, at the time. Um, and then I had one at Fair. But one of the considerations I've always had raising um, the kids here is that the number of times that school boundaries have changed from the time that they are in kindergarten to, um, yeah, to uh, senior year. I have seen it. And so the kids get used to the schools, the teachers, you know, we have a plan in place for how they're going to move from school to school to school. And then the district changes all of that. And now it's just disrupted. And then it disrupts all the other, like, it's like the, you know, the whole cart comes apart for us. Mm -hmm. And um, I've, you know, I have personally tried to balance that and I understand. And, um, you know, my uncle was Dr. Richard Green. Um, you know, that's my dad's brother, right? Like benchmarks, mm -hmm. magnet schools, Sumatech, all of those things were under his leadership. This is not the first time, this is not the first rodeo of trying to figure out how to integrate schools and figure out magnets. But I, but I am concerned about the, um, the emotional elements of that families, the relational loss. And I'm hoping that the schools and the, the district is accounting for how we counter some of those things. Because it's not easy to be this disruptive. Mm -hmm. I understand it from a systems perspective, but there, there are people that were impacting, little little right. people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like the community school model idea, you know, in theory. I mean, similar to my hope and dream to always live and work and go to church right in the same neighborhood. But the the change and the transition to get there is, is difficult. Do you think, I mean, you know, this is set and done now, so I'm definitely not trying to be an outside critic, but remember when we were working to open up North Market at Pillsbury United when I was a CEO there and we did a lot of research, right? And um, people don't shop at one grocery store anymore. Like we've moved away from models. Like even where I live, you know, on the North side here, there's, you know, 50% of the people that live by me don't, their kids don't attend Minneapolis public schools. Right. Um, so there's lots of options that are available. So even this idea that you can sort of control what that looks like is a little bit, that might be true within the district, but there's so many other options and the way that parents choose and the way the community works. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I hope that this plan uh, lives out and I guess it's up to all of us to make sure that that it's meeting that vision um, because there are benefits to having a community school and having people know it, but we have to stick with it long enough for these kids to make it through 12th grade. Right. Right. And it's, it's uncomfortable along the way. I mean, when you said control, I think you hit it right on the head, just like our conversation about student behavior, when you feel like you're, you're being controlled or someone's attempting to control you as humans, we become oppositional. Yeah. So as you're welcoming in um, new students and new families into your uh, Laney uh, family this fall, are there things that um, folks in community can do to support you and, and your, your teachers um, in that transition? Yeah, I mean, come see us. I think that, the, that a school should have open doors. I mean, we are public employees paid with public 
dollars. So come see us, come see me anytime. On the first day of school, we like to have as many family members and community members come out to just cheer for the kids and greet them as they come in the building. So with our new start time, it's earlier, but um, September 8th, 7.45, be at Lucy Laney with your smiles and bells on and, and help us help us welcome all the kids. Sounds good, Lisa. Thank you for being um, on, on this conversation in this conversation and being such a champion for our kids and our community. I have to say to, you know, my nephew Adonis um, went there and when he, he graduated from the school and went on to Franklin, oh man, he had some tears because <laughs> he just loved the school. He just loved it. And it's like, you know, when you have kids that are crying because they're just going to miss the people in the building, um, he was definitely one of those kids that felt the love and the support there. So thank you for what you gave to him. Thank you, and it's mutual. I had some tears saying goodbye to Adonis also. And that's Lisa Pavlek and our host, Shonda Rhymes Like Honda Smith-Baker. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast or looking for ways to do more, please contact me. You can find my information on our website at minneapolisfoundation.org. Thank you to Sarah Gilland for making our artwork and copy for this episode. And thank you to Darlin Benjamin for coordinating and making this conversation happen. This is Sue Pa Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.